So let's take up and read from Zechariah chapter 8, the entire chapter. And the word of the Lord of hosts came, saying, Thus says the Lord of hosts, I am jealous for Zion with great jealousy, and I am jealous for her with great wrath. Thus says the Lord, I have returned to Zion and will dwell in the midst of Jerusalem, and Jerusalem shall be called the faithful city and the mountain of the Lord of hosts, the holy mountain. Thus says the Lord of hosts, old men and old women shall again sit in the streets of Jerusalem, each with a staff in hand because of great age. And the streets of the city shall be full of boys and girls playing in the streets. Thus says the Lord of hosts, if it is marvelous in the sight of the remnant of this people in those days, should it also be marvelous in my sight, declares the Lord of hosts. Thus says the Lord of hosts, behold, I will save my people from the east country and from the west country, and I will bring them to dwell in the midst of Jerusalem, and they shall be my people, and I will be their God in faithfulness and in righteousness. Thus says the Lord of hosts, let your hands be strong, you who dwell these days, and who have been hearing these words from the mouth of the prophets who were present on the day that the foundation of the house of the Lord was laid, that the temple might be built. For behold, before before those days there was no wage for man or any wage for beast, neither was there any safety from foe for him who went out or came in. For I set every man against his neighbor. But now I will not deal with the remnant of this people as in the former days, declares the Lord of hosts. For there shall be a sowing of peace. The vine shall give its fruit and the ground shall give its produce. The heavens shall give their dew. And I will cause the remnant of this people to possess all these things. And as you have been a byword of cursing among the nations, O house of Judah and house of Israel, so I will save you and you shall be a blessing. Fear not, but let your hands be strong. For thus says the Lord of hosts, as I purpose to bring disaster to you when your fathers provoked me to wrath and I did not relent, says the Lord of hosts. So again have I purposed in these days to bring good to Jerusalem and to the house of Judah. Fear not. These are the things that you shall do. Speak truth to one another. Render in your gates judgments that are true and make for peace. Do not devise evil in your hearts against one another, and love no false oath. For all these things I hate, declares the Lord. And the word of the Lord of hosts came to me, saying, Thus says the Lord of hosts, The fast of the fourth month, and the fast of the fifth month, the fast of the seventh month, and the fast of the tenth month, shall be to the house of Judah seasons of joy and gladness and cheerful feast. Therefore, love, truth, and peace. Thus says the Lord of hosts, people shall yet come, even the inhabitants of many cities. The inhabitants of one city shall go to another, saying, Let us go at once to entreat the favor of the Lord and to seek the Lord of hosts. I myself am going. Many peoples and strong nations shall come to seek the Lord of hosts in Jerusalem and to entreat the favor of the Lord. Thus says the Lord of hosts, in those days, ten men from the nations of every tongue shall take hold of the robe of a Jew, saying, Let us go with you, for we have heard that God is with you. Amen. Thus ends the reading of God's word. If you would please join me in prayer. Uh, Father, we 
we are thankful today for, for Resurrection Sunday. Uh, that Christ was raised from the dead, that because he lives, we will live too. And Lord, we pray now that as we come before your word, uh, that you would indeed bless it, uh, that you would bless the preaching of your word, that you would bless us as we hear your word, uh, that you would cause us to understand what is, is written here. And Lord, that by your spirit and word, you would encourage your people uh, this evening. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen. Uh, we're coming up in the next month or so on graduation for many students, uh, whether it be high school, college, postgraduate. Uh, it's very common that when there is uh, someone who's about to turn a new corner in life and it appears that all is going well, somebody might say that they have a very bright future ahead of them. What that means is that everything is, is looking up. Everything is looking like it's going to turn out very well for this particular individual. We'll say that young man or that young woman has a bright future. Zechariah is going to tell the post-exilic community that they do indeed have a bright future ahead of them. Uh, Zechariah, as you recall, has been preaching a sermon. It is a two-point sermon. Point one is found in chapter 7. We looked at that several weeks back, where the prophet was exposing false man-centered religion uh, that had found its way in among God's people. Now in chapter 8, he's going to uh, lift their eyes and have them look toward the future and if chapter 7 was all about fasting, we're going to see how in chapter 8 uh, the prophet directs the people's eyes to see that the future will be full of feasting. And so what we're going to do is we're going to look at uh, Zechariah chapter 8 under three headings. Uh, typically when, we, uh, when I'm breaking down a passage, we try to uh, go verse by verse in order, but uh, this particular passage, we're going to be looking at different sections within the passage under three headings. Uh, first, we want to see how God's people have a bright future because God will bring peace. God will bring peace. Uh, secondly, we'll see how God will bring prosperity. God will bring prosperity. And third and finally, God will make his people attractive. God will make his people attractive. And we'll, we'll explain what each of those mean, but we'll start first with the fact that God will bring peace. Look with me at the beginning of the chapter. It says, And the word of the Lord of hosts came, saying, Thus says the Lord of hosts, I am jealous for Zion with great jealousy. And I'm jealous for her with great wrath. And this, if you recall, brings us all the way back to the beginning of the book. In Zechariah chapter 1, after a call was issued for repentance, God told his people that he, he knew all that was taking, part in, or taking place in their life. He, he told Zechariah how these horsemen were sent out to uh, canvas the land, to see all that was going on. And it was discovered that the nations were at ease while God's people had been severely depressed or oppressed. And they would have raised the question, Lord, aren't you going to do something? 
Don't you care that we've been oppressed for these uh, 70 years of exile? And God told His people that He was jealous for them. Once more, He says that He is jealous for His people. And he, he speaks about how in verse 3 that he has returned to Zion, he's returned to Jerusalem, and he is going to make Jerusalem into a faithful city. Now this is significant. Because if, if the original hearers of Zechariah's prophecy knew their Old Testament well and knew the previous prophecies that God had delivered to his people well, they would have recalled what God said through the prophet Isaiah. God says here in Zechariah that his people, Jerusalem, is going to be a faithful city. But if you recall from Isaiah chapter 1, verse 21, sharp words were spoken against God's people. Uh, the prophet in Isaiah chapter, 20, or chapter 1, verse 21 said, How the faithful city has become a whore. She who is full of justice, righteousness lodged in her, but now murderers. In previous days, God's people were full of sin. God's people were not a faithful city as they were called to be. But rather, as we saw with Isaiah, sharp words were spoken. And yet the Lord is saying through Zechariah that all this is going to change. That is not going to be the character of my people. Instead, look in verses 7 and 8. It says, Thus says the Lord of hosts, Behold, I will save my people from the east country and from the west country, and I'll bring them to dwell in the midst of Jerusalem, and they shall be my people. And I will be their God in faithfulness and in righteousness. During these great days of peace, God is going to gather many, many people and starting off, this will, be, this will be a reference to the regathering of God's people back to the promised land uh, after the exile. If you recall, not everyone had yet returned back to the promised land. God said He's going to continue to bring His people back. And yet, later on, uh, this will be a reference to a gathering of both Jews and Gentiles under the New Testament age. That God will gather His people from every tribe and nation. That He will gather His people from afar and bring them and He will be their God. This is the, this is the great promise that we see in so many Old Testament texts. Uh, beginning with, uh, with Abraham. That Abraham will be, uh, he will belong to the Lord. And God will be his God. And then later on throughout the Old Testament Scriptures, God says that He will gather His people. That they will be His people. God will be their God. And you and I now live in the, in the initial fulfillment of these words, and yet as we cast our eye to the, to the end of redemptive history, we know that John tells us in the book of Revelation, chapter 21, that he says, And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people, and God himself will be with them as their God. There's initial fulfillment now, but there is yet more to come. So God will bring peace. Secondly, God will bring prosperity. If you look at verses 4 to 5, it says, Thus says the Lord of hosts, Old men and old women shall again sit in the streets of Jerusalem, each with a staff in hand because of great age, and the streets of the city shall be full of boys and girls playing in the streets. 
Now, for most of us, we every once in a while, when we're reading Old Testament texts, we are uh, we stumble when we come across some of this imagery, and we would do well to ask, why is Zechariah talking about the fact that the streets will once more be full of boys and girls? Why? Why will the streets be full of old men and old women with their staffs? Well, if Let's put it this way. When, when the Babylonians came and they put a siege on the city of Jerusalem, the streets of Jerusalem would not have been a place to be playing around. Boys and girls would not be playing their games as the Babylonians tried to mount an attack against the city. When, when a siege finally came against Jerusalem and the supplies of food were cut off, who is it that would have... Who is it that would have suffered first? It would be those of great age. It would be those who were young, who were not able to perhaps flee away from the enemies. And so if there is going to be a return of old men, old women, young boys, young girls, it presupposes that God has brought in a time of peace. That God has put away warfare against his people, but rather that peace has been brought in, that the streets of Jerusalem are once more filled with people. They'll live in security. In verse 10, it speaks of the previous days. It says in verse 10, for before those days, there was no wage for man or wage for beast. Neither was there any safety from the foe for him who went out or came in. And I set every man against his neighbor. What Zechariah speaks of here is very uh, similar to what the situation was with the prophet Haggai. If you recall with the, the historical context of the prophet Haggai, he's a, he's a contemporary with Zechariah. God's people had been delivered out of, out of exile under the decree of Cyrus. They were allowed to return back to the land. And God commanded his people, rebuild the temple. Uh, allow the, the, the worship to be restarted. And if you're familiar with Haggai, they, they came back. Well, they laid the foundation. They got to work on their own homes. They, they put up their own paneled houses, but they neglected the rebuilding of the temple of the Lord. And as time went on, they realized they were not blessed. And Haggai came to them and he questioned, do you have enough wine? Do you have enough clothing? Do you have enough money? Or are you putting your money into bag, a bag with holes in it? And he, he pushed back against them and he reminded them, you are not currently under God's blessing because you have completely neglected the work of the Lord. Zechariah is saying the same thing here. That's, that's what it used to be. That's how it was in previous days. But he says in verse 12 that there will be a sowing of peace. That there will be great peace. And just as in verse 13, how it speaks about how God's people were a byword of cursing among the nations. In other words, as the nations looked upon God's people, they would have looked upon them and said, something has gone terribly wrong. These people, they, they claim to serve the Lord their God. They are not under blessing. They are under curse. They have been delivered into the hands of their enemies. Things are not going well. Zechariah says, just as that was true in the past, so now in the future, all the nations will look upon my people and they will say, something 
is going on with the, that people. That, 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 that group of people who serve the Lord God, they are blessed. They have peace and prosperity. All the, all the blessings spoken of in uh, Deuteronomy chapter 28 shall fall upon God's people. It will be obvious that the Lord is with His people. It brings us to our third point, and that is that God will make His people attractive. Now, when I say God will make His people attractive, does that mean that we have here in the Old Testament a promise that all of us are going to be physically attractive? No, I'm, I'm afraid we don't have that promise here in Zechariah. But what I mean is that God promises here that He will make His people spiritually attractive to the nations. This is a promise that stretches throughout the Scriptures. Uh, beginning with Abraham, what, what does God say to Abraham? That He will bless him. And that Abraham will be a blessing. And that in him all the nations of the earth shall be blessed. This passage teaches us that God will make His people spiritually attractive to the nations. Verses 20-23 through 23 show that the days are coming when the nations will be attracted to Mount Zion. They will desire to go to the Lord and they will bring others with them. They will say... Let us go at once and entreat the favor of the Lord and seek the Lord of hosts. I myself am going. In fact, it says at the end of our passage that ten men will take hold of a single Jew and request that they be able to go with him because they know that the Lord is with them. Now, we ought not to uh, press this to mathematical precision and say that it will always be a, a 10 to 1 ratio, but rather it's, it's speaking of the, the large numbers of those who will take hold of God's people in order to go and seek the Lord. And with, with this promise, Zechariah and, and the Lord knows, they both know, there are going to be those among the post-exilic community who think this isn't possible. This, this is too good to be true. We're, we're often told if something seems too good to be true, what do we say? It usually is. But look with me at verse 6. Thus says the Lord of hosts, if it is marvelous in the sight of the remnant of this people in those days, should it also be marvelous in my sight? declares the Lord of hosts. Do you see what he's saying there? He is saying that my work is not dependent upon what you think I'm able to carry out. My work is not limited by your expectations. And if it seems too good to be true for you, it's not too good to be true for me. It's not too good to be true for Jesus Christ. With his life, death, and resurrection, what we're taught from the New Testament is that this uh, great ingathering has certainly begun. It started with the, with the return of the exiles to the land in the Old Testament, but there is a, a greater ingathering that is taking place during the New Testament age. Indeed, as we, as we read the book of Acts, think about Acts chapter 16 where Paul and Silas, they're, they're sitting in the jail cell, they're singing hymns together, and eventually they're, they're released. 
And they, they have the encounter with the Philippian jailer. And the Philippian jailer wants to know, what must I do to be saved? Believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. That, that's, that's an example of how this is playing out within the history of God's people. What do you have there in Acts chapter 16? But you have a Gentile who is taking the hold of the robe of these Jews and saying, we know, I know that God is with you. Tell me the way of salvation. Tell me the way of salvation. In chapter 7, as we said, the, the previous chapter, chapter 7, the people were questioning if they could give up their, their fasting and get back to life as usual. And the prophet revealed that that was man-centered self-religion and, and God called His people to faithful obedience to both tables of the law, to love God and love their neighbor well. But if you look at verse 19, it says, Thus says the Lord of hosts, The fast of the fourth month, the fast of the fifth month, the fast of the seventh month, the fast of the tenth month, shall be to the house of Judah seasons of joy and gladness and cheerful feast. Therefore, love truth and peace. What, is, what does this mean? God is saying that the, the future is not going to be marked by mourning and, and, and fasting, but rather it will be a time of great joy and feasting. Uh, a day is coming when God's people, they'll look back upon the destruction of Jerusalem and they'll not, not fast for it, but see it as a, as a move by the sovereign hand of their father in order to bring about discipline. And with the coming of Christ, we have moved into a great era of, of joy, of peace, of feasting. As we, as we heard this morning with John chapter 11, death, yes, it is, it is a scary thing. It is, for those who are outside of Christ, the great exclamation point at the end of their life, as we heard. But for the believer, it is the comma. And we, we know as believers that the great questions of life have been answered. What do we do with our sin? It has been answered. It has been forgiven in Christ Jesus. What do we do about death? It is but a comma. We know that we will live because Christ lives and He is the Lord of life. And we know that Christ will indeed build His church. That the resurrection power has broken into this present evil age. And that Christ by His Spirit will continue to call sinful men and women. That He will open their eyes and enable them to embrace Him in the Gospel. So in light of this inbreaking of the Kingdom of Christ, how should we live? How should those in Zechariah's day live? Well, we're told at the end of verse 19, love, truth, and peace. Verses 16 and 17, these are the things that you shall do. Speak truth to one another. Render in your gates judgments that are true and make for peace. Do not devise evil in your hearts against one another. And love no false oath, for these things I hate, declares the Lord. Centuries later, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, the Apostle Paul is going to write a letter. And he's going to write it to the Christians in the city of Ephesus. And as Paul is writing how to live out the Christian life, what he says is, 
Therefore, having put away falsehood, let each of you speak the truth with his neighbor, for we are all members of one another. Where did Paul get that kind of idea? Paul is quoting from the Greek version of the Old Testament Scriptures. Paul is quoting from the book of Zechariah. That we are to speak truth with our neighbor. What, what Paul is saying is that the, the ethics of this age of feasting need to be put into place for the believer. And what's amazing is that God... We're, talking about how God will make His people attractive, how God will bring the nations to Mount Zion, to the heavenly Mount Zion, that is the Jerusalem that is now found in Christ. What's amazing is that God will often use means in order to bring His people to Mount Zion. That in order to bring in the nations, God will use means, as our confession teaches us about God using means. Take, for instance, there was a man in the second century... Uh, you've likely been taught about him in Sunday school, uh, named Justin Martyr. Uh, Justin was, uh, he lived in the second century. He was, uh, he's known for being a Christian apologist. Uh, but at the beginning of his life, Justin was a, an unbeliever. He was a pagan and he was very much tied up with pagan Greek philosophy. And he recalls later on how he was struck by the ways in which Christians would go to their death. That Christians would not love their their lives even to death, that they would put Christ first in all circumstances, even if it meant that they would die a brutal death. Later on in his life, In the providence of God, he talks about how he was walking along the seashore uh, near Ephesus. And he came into contact with an old man who talked to him about the Old Testament scriptures and talked to him about Jesus Christ. And Justin was converted. And he would spend the rest of his life not teaching pagan philosophy, but he would teach philosophy as a Christian showing how only a worldview with Christ at the center is going to make sense of God's world. Now, what's, what's interesting is, with that particular illustration, there, there's two things that come before our eyes that I believe are central to God's people being attractive and God's people being instrumental in the nation's coming to place their faith in Jesus Christ. And those two things would be ethics and evangelism. Notice that before he came to faith, God prepared him by allowing Justin to reflect on the way that Christians lived, the the ethics that they had in place. And that's that's true for many who uh, who have been brought to faith in Christ. It's not uncommon Uh, If someone grew up within a Christian home to to hear how they saw either their parents or their grandparents or some relative walk faithfully before the Lord and that was instrumental in them coming to the faith. Or if perhaps they didn't grow up in a Christian home, it's not uncommon to hear about how perhaps they were received into the home of a Christian and they watched how the Christian life was lived out before them and that was a good preparation for them to respond to the gospel. That's what happened to Justin. Each of us should be striving 
to live ethically in a way that would be that would be attractive to those around us. The same is also true. We're, we're very familiar with stories where people perhaps uh, saw Christians live inconsistently and it left a bad taste in the mouth of an unbeliever. We want to avoid that. But secondly, it's not just ethics, it's also evangelism. And this is particularly important in our time and culture that uh, we may fall into the temptation to say what we want to do is we want to live within a pagan world and we want to, we want to love other unbelievers well and that's going to be the way that they're going to come to faith. And yet with Justin, if this particular man had simply loved Justin well and he never opened his mouth about Christ, he never told him that his, uh, his worldview was wrong and inconsistent, Justin would have gone to hell. And so we need to keep in mind that uh, no unbeliever is ever going to be saved simply because we love them well. We must also tell them about Christ what Zechariah is calling for God's people to do is to be men and women of both godly ethics and those who would be committed to evangelism, who would tell people about the one true God. He wants them to practice true religion, fulfilling both tables of the law, loving God and loving your neighbor well according to God's law. And it's wonderful that not only in the, in the early first century in the book of Acts, but even today we still see men and women crying out, what must we do to be saved? And by faith, laying hold of the robe of Jesus Christ, asking that His robe of righteousness would be granted to them. And what, wonderfully we know that Jesus is pleased, He is happy to grant to those who come to Him in faith and repentance, He is happy to grant His own robe of righteousness to them. He is happy to grant the Holy Spirit to give them new life, to uh, enliven their minds and allow them to embrace Him. He is happy to bring them from a life of meaningless and mourning to a life of joy, of happiness and feasting. And He will be pleased to sit down. As we were reminded this morning, He will be pleased to sit down with them and feast with them as we enter into the consummated state. He will be pleased to sit down and share a meal with them. It is then when Jesus comes back, it is when the, this present age is brought to a close, we will see Zechariah chapter 8 fulfilled to its fullest. That there will be true peace in all the land. He will come back. He will set all things right. Zechariah's prophecy will be fulfilled. And we will indeed be those who are blessed in the fullest sense of the word. You, Christian, have a bright future ahead of you. I hope you believe that. May we be those who live lives of godly ethics and evangelism and labor hard as we await the return of Christ. Amen. Father, we... We do thank you that you have given us the encouragement of your prophet here in Zechariah chapter 8. We pray that we would uh, labor on expectantly. Lord, that we would labor on and seek to see many 
uh, be brought into your kingdom before your return. And we pray all these things in the name of Christ. Amen.